As we get started, I want to ask you a question. I would like if you have had, if anyone in the room has had ministerial training, I'd like you to stand. If you've had ministerial training, okay. Okay. I want you guys to look around the room at those who have stood for ministerial training. Okay. My next thing is this. If you are a minister of a pastor or an evangelist or a Bible worker, please sit. Okay, so those who are standing are not pastors, evangelists, or Bible workers. All right, you may sit. <laughs> All right. The next thing is, um, how many of you would like Jesus to come very soon? Raise your hands. Okay, praise the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you've seen the hands of those who have raised them, desiring your soon return. As we approach this message today, we ask the outpouring of your Holy Spirit on each one of us. We know that the Holy Spirit is already here because your word has said that where two or three are gathered together, there you are in the midst of them. Open our hearts to receive the word that you have for us today. For Jesus' sake, amen. First of all, my title is My Jesus, My King, My Life, My All. On October 30, excuse me, it was on August, on August 8, 1934, the U.S. Army Air Corps tendered a proposal for a multi-engine bomber to replace the Martin B-10. The Air Corps was looking for a bomber capable of reinforcing the Air Forces in Hawaii, Panama, and Alaska. The requirements were quite specific and fairly uh, huge. That particular bomber had to be able to carry a useful bomb load at an altitude of 10,000 feet for 10 hours with a top speed of at least 200 miles per hour. It was desired but not required. They'd have a range of about 2,000 miles. The competition for the Air Corps contract would be decided by a fly-off between Boeing's design there is a point to Between Boeing's design, the, the B-299, the Martin model, and a Douglas, at, does anybody know where it was supposed to be? It was supposed to be at Wright Field in Dayton, Ohio. Ohio, especially specifically Dayton, Ohio, has some value. I don't see my children here. I see my children here, there they are. Ohio has value for something. This was not in California, it was in Ohio. The prototype B-17, designated the Model 299, was very cool plane. This plane, now from this distance I can't read the dimensions, but the wingspan was huge. Its armament consisted of up to 4,800 pounds of bombs on two racks in the bomb bay behind the cockpit. It was powered and I like this. It was powered by four Pratt and Whitney R6090 Hornet radial engines. Does anybody know what that means? <laughs> Each was producing 750 horsepower at 7,000 feet. That was five times as many bombs. It could fly faster, fly twice as far, and set flight distance records of greater than 3,000 miles. There's another view of this plane. If you noticed in the beginning, there were three planes. Two of the planes, the Martin and the other one, had <laughs> two engines, but the Boeing had four engines. Clearly, the Boeing was going to have a significant advantage. Richard Williams, a reporter for the Seattle Times, coined this aircraft the Flying Fortress when the aircraft rolled out bristling with multiple gun installations. The most unique gun emplacement was the nose installation. By the way, I had such an incredible privilege of touring this aircraft in Dayton, Ohio this summer. Boeing held on to the name the Flying Fortress and had it a trade trademarked for this aircraft. It was the first combat aircraft that 
could continue its mission if one of its four engines failed for any reason. The Army Air Corps was ready to buy 65 of this model Boeing aircraft. On October 30, 1935, the day of the fly-off, the captain of this aircraft was Major Ployer Peter Hill. Naming a child is important. Ployer is an interesting name, but that was his name. It turned out that Major Ployer Peter Hill was the most incredible pilot in aviation at that time. This man was talented. In addition to Major Ployer Peter Hill, there were four other crew on this aircraft. The plane taxied down the runway. I shouldn't have showed you that yet. It was a little surprise. <laughs> that would be called some equipment malfunction. The plane taxied onto the runway, roared down the tarmac, lifted off smoothly and climbed quickly to 300 feet. It stalled, turned on one wing, and crashed in a fiery explosion, killing Major Ployer Peter Hill and one other crew member. This was a major catastrophe. What went wrong? I need to walk over here so I can see what went wrong. <laughs> Happy Sabbath. <laughs> there was no mechanical failure. There was no pilot error. This aircraft was substantially more complex. It had four engines, retractable landing gear, new wing flaps, electric trim tabs, constant speed propellers whose pitch had to be regulated constantly. Major Ployer Peter Hill got this all right. However, Prior to takeoff, there was a new stabilizer on the rudder controls, and the crew member forgot to disengage this particular stabilizer. The next day, the newspaper report said that it was too much plane for one man to fly. The Army bought smaller, easier-to-operate planes, and Boeing almost went bankrupt. And I say almost, because importantly, Boeing instituted some course corrections. Those course corrections were so efficient that that B-299 became the B-17 bomber it became the most significant weapon of World War II for the U.S. Army Air Forces. It was involved in strategic bombing campaigns in World War II against German targets, dropping more bombs than any aircraft in World War II. It was noted, and I love this part, it was noted for its ability to absorb battle damage. It could be cut and slashed and still reach its target, bringing its crew home safely. In fact, it was reported that one such bomber suffered such incredible damage, it had been reported shot down. But indeed, the plane survived and brought its crew home without injury. For many reasons, the B-17 Flying Fortress became an icon of American power and the symbol of the Air Force. The reason for this? Course corrections. I want us this morning to open our Bibles. We're going to look at three passages of Scripture. The first is in Numbers, the book of Numbers. We'll be going to chapter 14, although we are going to do a little review in chapter 13. The text we were going to be focusing on is Numbers chapter 14, verses 20 and 21. However, the background to this story, I think, is significant. Israel had been at Mount Horeb, and God said it's time now to leave Mount Horeb and enter into Canaan, the promised land. 
It was supposed to be, the Bible says in Deuteronomy chapter 1, 11 short days that they were to make this journey. However, they decided that they needed a study to see if this was possible for them to actually go into the promised land. So as we recall, they sent out uh, 12 spies to spy out the land of Canaan. When the 12 spies returned, I want you to look at Numbers chapter 13. And I'll look at verse 27. I will just comment on this. They began to relate to the people that indeed it was a land that truly flowed with milk and honey and that its fruit was sweet. Nevertheless, they reported to the children of Israel that the people dwelling there were strong, the cities were fortified, and moreover, they saw the descendants of Anak there, and in fact, these descendants were giants. Additionally, the Amalekites were on the south side, the Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites were in the mountains, and the Canaanites dwelt along the sea by the banks of the Jordan. Caleb spoke up, and he attempted to quiet the people, and this is what he said in verse 30. Let us go up at once and take possession, for we are well able to overcome it. He did not say, let us go up and conquer. It was as if it had already been conquered. The mission had already been accomplished. Instead, he said, let's go up and possess it. However, the other spies said in verse 31, we cannot go up against this people because they are stronger than we are. We know from addition to the story in Deuteronomy chapter 1 that the Lord said, I am with you. I will do this thing. But the other 10 spies says we can't do it because they're stronger than we are. And they gave the children of Israel a bad report. At that point, um, they told them that the uh, land which they have gone to spy out devours its inhabitants and all the people whom we saw in it are men of great stature. There we saw the giants, the descendants of Anak, and we were like grasshoppers in our own sight. At that point, um, Israel said, let us just go back to Egypt. We'd rather die in the land of Egypt than die in this place. God was quite concerned. In Numbers chapter 14, verse 11, the Lord said it this way, to Moses. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will these people reject me? How long will they not believe me? At that, the Lord said to Moses, I am going to destroy these people and I'm going to start over with you. Moses, knowing God better than anybody on the planet, said back to God, You can't do that because the Egyptians are out there and the Egyptians will think poorly of you if you do this thing. What's most remarkable is down in verse 19, Moses appears to have swayed God's heart. Verse 20, excuse me, verse 19 says, Pardon the iniquity of this people, I pray, according to the greatness of your mercy, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt even until now. In other words, you have forgiven these people, continue to forgive them. Then God says, in a faith statement, I believe, but truly as I live, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of God. I want you to hang on to that text. I want now to go over to Matthew chapter 24. We have three texts that I want to look at as we get started. Matthew chapter 24, verse 14. This text is very, very familiar to Seventh-day Adventists. In fact, we have stated staked our hope on this text as Seventh-day Adventists. It says this, And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. The most important word, however, in that text is not the fact that the outcome is going to happen, but how it's going to happen. It's by the preaching of this gospel, not any gospel, this gospel. It's important, I believe, that we understand that it's not a matter of quantity. We can place satellites and be sure they are placed in every single dwelling place on this planet and pipe in messages 
until everyone hears the message. But is that enough? The fact of the matter is the Bible says that this gospel, this particular gospel, a gospel that is powerful enough, complete enough to bring on the end and, in fact, to save God's reputation and to vindicate God. That's this gospel, and we're going to look at what that is. The third text I want to look at is Revelation chapter 18, verse 1. Revelation chapter 18, verse 1. After these things, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was illuminated with its glory. This is not a bright light. This text is speaking of a message a message that is so powerful, it illuminates, it lightens the earth with its glory. This is the fourth angel that comes down from heaven with a loud voice to emphasize and highlight the message that was given by the other three angels prior. In fact, this message is so important that in the face of this message from Revelation chapter 2 on, every false religion falls. This gospel, this message is so powerful that every false religion falls in the light of this illuminating message. I want to read a quote that I carry in my Bible from Ellen White. And this is from Christ Object Lessons, page 415. It is the darkness of misapprehension of God that is enshrouding the world. Men are losing sight, excuse me, men are losing their knowledge of his character. It has been misunderstood and misinterpreted. At this time, a message from God is to be proclaimed, a message illuminating in its influence and saving in its power. His character is to be made known into the darkness of the world is to be shed the light of his glory, the light of his goodness, mercy, and truth. The last rays of merciful light, the last message, what does the quote say? The last message of mercy to be given to the world is a revelation of his character of love. The children of God are to manifest his glory in their own life and character. They are to reveal what the grace of God has done for them. Remember the text in Matthew chapter 24 said that this gospel will be preached to all the world as a witness, as a witness to all the world, and then the end will come. This text that we just read tells us, those three texts tell us, that the mission that God has for this church is going to be wildly successful. The Seventh-day Adventist church was born out of prophecy. The Seventh-day Adventist church was born to be a prophetic movement. We were never born to be a denomination. We weren't born to occupy till he comes. We act as if we are to occupy till he comes. However, we are a, a movement a church that was born on the move with a prophetic voice. That's what the Bible tells us. And what is a prophet? A prophet is one who's raised up from amongst God's people with something unique to say. Think about John the Baptist, for example. John the Baptist had something unique to say. In fact, John the Baptist was dressed in a very peculiar fashion. You knew he was the prophet. Seventh-day Adventists have the same role. We were born as a prophetic movement. As we look back at our early history, uh, Ellen White, J.N. Andrews, um, Joseph Bates, Uriah Smith, some of them teenagers, began to appreciate the calling of Seventh-day Adventists. And they began to understand a system of truth. Multiple doctrines were coming in, and they were beginning to grab hold of these things. They began to understand, however, the cosmic nature of these things. The great controversy theme began to emerge and to develop in Seventh-day Adventism. A doctrinal system was evolving. I'll use a different word. Was increasing. Never use the word evolve because we did not evolve from anything. Nothing evolves. 
So a doctrinal system began to emerge. As that doctrinal system that these pioneers were studying began to emerge, early writings records two course setting visions that were given to our people as we began to move forward and to proclaim the message of the prophet. One of them was by William Miller. Another one was by Ellen White. Um, and in this particular vision, um, I want to read a summary of what she said. And um, I think it is significant for us to understand, I believe, what this dream that Ellen White had, the significance of this dream. As they were studying all these truths, the Lord wanted to keep them focused in a particular way, and this is what she says. I dreamed of seeing a temple to which many people were flocking. On entering the building, I saw that the vast temple was supported by one immense pillar. And to this was tied a lamb, all mangled and bleeding. We who were present, thank you, so I was testing to make sure you're awake. We who were present seemed to know that this lamb had been bruised, torn and bruised on our account. So she says, there's a very strange building. This building was supported by one immense pillar. What does this re mean? This dream meant that this immense pillar to which a lamb, lamb was tied, all mangled and bleeding, represented the cross of Jesus Christ. That one immense pillar is the matchless love of God manifested in the sacrifice of the cross. Amen. This is Jesus saying to the Advent movement at that time in a course-setting vision, you're about to discover an immense system of truth but there is one central pillar that supports the entire edifice of truth. It's Jesus Christ and him crucified. It is to remain central to our message. Along with this quote, Ellen White, thinking back now, this is a different time, now this is 1890, but she has stayed true to what she was called to, and this is that quote at this time, from That I May Know Him, page 208. She says, there is one great central truth to be kept before the mind in the searching of the scriptures, Christ and him crucified. Every other truth is invested with influence and power corresponding to its relation to its theme. Every single truth, including the sanctuary truth, the Sabbath, or health message, Everything, she says, is invested with influence and power corresponding to its relation to this theme. It is only in the light of the cross that we can discern the exalted character of the law of God. The soul palsied by sin can be endowed with life only through the work wrought out on, upon the cross by the author of our salvation. The love of Christ constrains man to unite with him in his labor and sacrifice. The revelation of divine love awakens in them a sense of their neglected obligation to be light bearers to the world and inspires them with a missionary spirit. What inspires with a missionary spirit? It is only the uplifted Savior. That's what inspires the missionary spirit. It is not done from a sense of obligation. The truth enlightens the mind. It sanctifies the soul. Which truth? This truth, that central truth, Christ and him crucified, enlightens the mind, sanctifies the soul. Guess what? The cross of Jesus Christ, she says, it will banish unbelief and inspire faith. When Christ in his work of redemption is seen to be the great central truth of the system of truth, new light is shed upon events, all the events of the past and future, they are seen in a new relation and possess a new and deeper significance. She also says this, the truth for this time, for what time? This time is broad in its outlines, far-reaching, embracing many doctrines. But these doctrines are not detached items 
meaning which mean little. They are united by golden threads forming a complete whole with Christ as the living center. Okay, I want to recap where we have been so far. So far, we have seen a, an amazing B-17 bomber that had every advantage over all the other uh, aircraft to be successful. But because of one mistake, there was a crash. Boeing almost went bankrupt, but in wisdom, it made significant course corrections and was important in winning World War II. We then looked at three texts at the beginning. Those three texts uh, were in Numbers, Matthew 24, and Revelation. Those texts tell us that the mission of God is going to be wildly successful. We looked at Israel. Israel had every advantage to enter Canaan, but because of unbelief, they failed to enter in. The Bible records Jesus' words, God's words specifically were, you have rejected me, you have not believed me. In Christ's optic lessons, we have been told that we need at this time a message illuminating in its influence and saving in its power. Seventh-day Adventists were raised up to, to, to deliver that message. What we also know, though, is Ellen White has some things to say to us because Seventh-day Adventists have, in many respects, repeated what Israel has done. But we have opportunities at this time. I want to look at three quotes. Ellen White said, The time of test is just upon us. For the loud cry of the third angel has already begun in the revelation of the righteousness of Christ, the sin-pardoning redeemer. Had Adventists, I asked you at the beginning to raise your hand if you believe that the Lord should come soon. Had Adventists, after the great disappointment in 1844, held fast their faith and followed on unitedly in the opening providence of God, receiving the message of the third angel and in the power of the Holy Spirit, proclaiming it to the world, they would have seen the salvation of God. The Lord would have wrought mightily with their efforts. The work would have been completed and Christ would have come ere this to receive his people to their reward. Then she says, it was not the will of God that the coming of Christ should be thus delayed. She also says this, the Lord in his great mercy sent a most precious message to his people through elders Wagoner and Jones. This message was to bring more prominently before the world the uplifted Savior, the sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. It presented justification through faith and the surety. It invited the people to receive the righteousness of Christ, which is made manifest in obedience to all the commandments of God. Many had lost sight of Jesus. They needed to have their eyes directed to his divine person, his merits, his changes, love for the human family. All power is given into his hands that he may dispense rich gifts unto men, imparting the priceless gift of his own righteousness to the helpless human agent. This is the message that God commanded to be given to the world. Remember I said earlier, Matthew 24, verse 14 says, this gospel, not just any gospel, not just quantity, but there's a quality in the gospel. And she said, this is the message, the message of Christ's righteousness, the uplifted Savior. This is the message that God commanded to be given to the world. It is the third angel's message, which is to be proclaimed with a loud voice and attending with the outpouring of his spirit in large measure. When the spirit is poured in large measure, what happens? The second coming comes on. One more quote. The message of Christ's righteousness is to sound from one end of the earth to the other to prepare the way of the Lord. This is the glory of God which closes the work of the third angel. At least two times in our history, Ellen White has made statements that the Lord should have come before this. So the question is, why are we discussing this particular topic at a medical, dental Healthcare workers meeting. 
If you look at this quote, it says, this is from the 1888 materials, page 1710. The truth for this time, the third angel's message, is to be proclaimed with a loud voice, meaning with increasing power. As we approach the great final test, this test must come to the churches in connection with true medical missionary work. A work that has the great physician to dictate and preside in all it comprehends. Why are we talking about this? The right arm has to join with the proclamation of the third angel's message. I want to read you something um, that was written by Percy McGann. I read you snatches of it. It was a memorial to the officers of the General Conference, written in 1932. He caught the vision of God's last day church, making a worldwide demonstration of Christ-like service, embracing both the body and the soul. And um, let me just find it here so I can read this. When I read this, I was quite... Uh, really impressed. She says, this is what he says, Percy McGann, our physicians are quite fond of citing us to certain expressions alleged to be found in the spirit of prophecy. To, effect, to the effect that the last work ever to be done on earth by Seventh-day Adventists will be on medical work. However, the intrinsic idea which Ellen G. White expressed seems to have been almost altogether lost sight of. The words were, sp were spoken at the 1901 General Conference. The exact language is as follows, and I quote now from what Ellen White says. I wish to tell you that soon there will be no work done in ministerial lines, but medical missionary work. That was the General Conference Bulletin, 1901. Percy McGann goes on. It must be very clear from this that the medical work to which we are called, the medical work to which we are called is in its nature ministerial, spiritual, and soul-saving. I tricked you at the beginning. I asked those with ministerial training to stand. Every one of you should have stood up. Because the medical work to which we are called is in its nature, ministerial, spiritual, and soul-saving. Therefore, it is most essential that the training in the medical school be of a ministerial and missionary nature. It must be spiritual as well as scientific. I will add to that and say this, not just a Bible class. It must be spiritual as well as scientific. The ultimate aim of our effort must to be equip, must be to equip and send forth into the harvest field an army of medical ministers of the word of God. Our men go forth as good scientific doctors. A very large number of them go forth as Seventh-day Adventist Christian men and women but they are not trained to go, to go forth blending the two ministries into one, the ministry of preaching of the kingdom and the ministry of the healing of the body. And how clearly did he teach the 12 disciples, as well as the 70, that this unified gospel of cleansing soul and body must be the foundation stone of all their effort. If the College of Medical Evangelists, now Loma Linda University, is to, to fulfill its divine mission amongst the remnant people and for earth's sin sick and diseased souls, it will be fundamentally necessary to train the students in gospel medical missionary work. From all of the above, we conclude that the medical college owned and operated by the remnant church, if it is going to be true to its trust, must educate its students that their work is to be that of teaching the gospel equally 
with healing the sick. Percy began from there, begins to recount places where people have preached the gospel, healed the sick along the way. And then he says this, I want you, this, I, I want you to really grab hold of what I'm about to read. So I'm going to ask you to do something. I don't have a slide for this. <laughs> it's too much to type. I hate to type. I don't type well. But this is solemn. I want you to close your eyes and listen very closely. He says, and yet... As the divine master gazes upon the different throngs who in the ages that have come and gone have borne the message of the hour, each in his own appointed time and generation, methinks I hear the divine master say, one thing thou lackest. Of ministerial bands, there have been many who have nobly trod the hard and narrow way. But mine eye beholdeth that not anywhere in time's long day as much as one company, save that one which I did train for a pattern, who have made it their role on earth to blend two ministries in one, even as I their master did, and concerning which I commanded, as ye go, preach, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out devils, freely you have, been re you have received, Freely give. I thought that that was, when I read that, my heart was touched and I was greatly moved. The Lord raised up the medical work, not just to be physicians, but also to be evangelists. There's a burning platform in um, some time ago. <laughs> In the North Sea of Scotland, an oil rig platform exploded. One of the supervisors was in his sleeping chambers when the explosion happened. He came out of his room and realized that the platform was engulfed in fire. He stood on the platform and he looked down into the waters below, and the oil had caught fire on the surface of the water. It bubbled up and caught fire on the surface of the water. In addition to that, debris had spilled all over the face of the water. He was standing on this platform. He looked around to his right side, and there was just a wall of fire. He looked behind him, and there was a wall of fire. He looked to his left side, and there was a wall of fire. He looked down and he recognized, as he looked down, that the water was icy cold, so cold that should he jump, he could survive only 20 minutes if he was not rescued. It was 15 stories down to the cold, frigid water. And he recognized that if he stayed on that platform, it was going to be certain death. But if he jumped off, it would be probable death. He said it was jump or fry. And so he jumped. When the rescuers caught up to him, he was rescued, he was in the hospital, they said, why did you do it? He said, I looked around, he said, I didn't want to die. So I better take my chances and jump off. And so he did. And the question is, what is going to be our burning platform to get us to do something about this issue? Too much plane for one man to fly. Avatism's problem. First of all, the good news. This is the last church. This church is going forward. It's going nowhere but forward. And God has promised us that he will take us forward. Since Ellen White made her comments that uh, the second coming was at hand on numerous occasions, that was a small world back then. Now the world is an awfully big place. I also believe that Seventh-day Adventists, and this might be a strong statement, but at least it could wake us up. I believe the Seventh-day Adventists, we have lost our identity and our mission. We are to be a prophetic movement. We are not to occupy and be a denomination. I also believe that we have failed to pass along our identity and mission to our children in a large degree. If you ask the average, not the people sitting here or GYC, but if you ask the average Seventh-day Adventist young person, 
Can you please tell me about the sanctuary truth? You'll see the eyes glaze over, and they'll be like tabula rasa. We have also failed to accept the Lord's diagnosis. One of the most difficult passages of Scripture for Seventh-day Adventists to embrace is Revelation chapter 3, that you're miserable, you're naked, you're poor, blind, and you are naked. We have, have a difficult time appreciating that. We are also preoccupied with lesser things. We need to think about what those lesser things could be. So too much playing for one man to fly Adventism's problem. However, Adventism has a solution to the problem. Accept the Lord's remedy. And the Bible in Revelation chapter 3 goes over the, the remedy to buy gold, the faith of Jesus Christ, to appropriate the righteousness of Jesus Christ and get the divine eyesight that we may see things from his standpoint, see as he sees. A commitment to, the, to live and to preach the gospel. I want to introduce you to Michael, teach it to our children. This is an interesting story. I am the program director for the residency in internal medicine at Kettering Medical Center. And as such, I interview applicants. This is interview season. Two seasons ago, I was reviewing applications for the day because we had applicants interviewing that particular day. I was reviewing the applications, and I came across one, Michael, and he had gone to the academy in our town. But he had gone to college at a secular institution and was coming from a secular institution from medical school. I thought to myself, this is a little unusual. So I said, when he came into my office, he sat down, I said, how did it come that you went to this academy in our town? Because you can't say, are you an Adventist or what? You can't ask that. So he asked this other question. He said, well, I'm a Seventh-day Adventist. I said, okay, well, great. How did it happen then that you went to a secular undergraduate university? He said, well, I got a full-ride scholarship. I said, okay, well, how did it come then that you went to this secular university for medical school? And he said, well, I looked around, and I saw I wanted to get the best education I could. So I went to this university. At that point, I know for sure now, the Holy Spirit said to me, Lindy, put down your pen and just talk to this young man honestly. So I said to him, I'm going to tell you something. You have two choices for residency. One is Kettering Medical Center, the other is Loma Linda University, because you are a medical missionary. There's not going to be a job. You're not just a doctor. You're not just here to make money. You're here to be a medical missionary. The look on his face was quite hilarious. His eyes were like bigger saucers. And I said, moreover, I want you to go home and read the first 100 pages of the Ministry of Healing. He told me he had no such book. I said, well, you can buy this book. And uh, I encouraged him to do so. He corresponded with me. And um, he actually ranked us number one. He is one of our residents. When he came to Kettering as a resident, he came to my office and he said, do you know why I'm here at Kettering for residency? He said, you were the nicest person I met on the interview trail. <laughs> and I was saying, praise the Lord, because I could have been, I don't know, he could have written me up for something. <laughs> but we need to let our children recognize, you know what? The greatest education on this planet is Seventh-day Adventist education. I believe it firmly. Our children need to be in our schools. They have no clue what's going on in Seventh-day Adventism. The last thing is down here, the physician, dentist, healthcare workers opportunity. We have a calling at this point to join ourselves to our pastors in medical missionary work. This is our calling. I want to tell the story, to read you the story, I believe, of a wonderful example of a medical missionary, probably one of the greatest examples that we know of today of a medical missionary, David Livingston. David Livingston was born in Blantyre, Scotland in 1813. He was born into a home where his father used to put him on his knees and read him stories of great missionary exploits, particularly that of Karl Gutzlaff, the Dutch missionary, 
who double up as a medical missionary too. Young David used to look into his father's eyes and say, you know, Daddy, one day I'll be a man like that. I want to be a missionary. I want to be a doctor. I want to serve God. David Livingston got to his knees one day and said, said this prayer, Lord, send me anywhere. Only go with me. Lay any burden on me. Only sustain me. Sever any ties but the ties that bind me to your service and to your heart. And the words of God came to him, Lo, I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. He packed his bags and went off to Africa. And when he took one glimpse of Africa from a distance, he penned in his journal these words, The haunting specter of the smoke of a thousand villages in the morning sun has burned within my heart. He married a woman of the famous Moffat family. Mary was her name. Her father was a great missionary. They went to Africa, but David Livingston's life was that of an explorer, and he could move from place to place, and, and his only goal was Jesus in the hearts and lives of men and women, thousands of them. Finally, his wife and his young children couldn't keep up with him anymore. Some of his children were dying out of sickness and disease. So he said to his wife, why don't you take them home, and I will see you shortly and spend some time with you. It's too dangerous for us to go on. So he sent his dear wife Mary back home, and letters would take months to exchange. But some of the fondest letters of love and romance were sent between David and Mary. And you know when he saw her the next time? Not five weeks, not five months, five years. Five years later, when he, met, when he set eyes upon his wife, she could not recognize him because at one stage in his jungle travels, going to preach, he walked into a branch of a tree that had completely blinded him in one eye and marred the other. His face had been burned under the African sun to a crisp of leather, and his skin, which had not been pigmented for it, had not been pigmented for it, had been roasted to the point that his body could not take it any longer. His face marred and scarred and his eye blinded, and at one time he had been attacked by a lion that had torn one of his shoulders apart. He miraculously escaped. Now she saw her husband hobbling in with a marred face and a disfigured physical countenance. Hours before he arrived, they had buried his father. David wept because he had longed to tell his dad firsthand of the stories his father had only told him thirdhand. Biographical sketches tell us that when David Livingston walked into any university in the British Isles, students and faculty would rise to a standing ovation because they knew they were standing in the presence of a giant of a man. Finally, he went back to his wife one day and said, Mary, the haunting specter of the smoke of a thousand villages in the morning sun is still burning within my heart. We need to go back. She decided that he should go. She had to be with the children. She said, when they are old enough, I will join you again. And he set off on his lonely journey to preach to the African people who was such, so much within his heart. Finally, after a long time, Mary joined him, and the day she set foot on African soil, she contracted a disease they had so dreaded she would contract. The very day she set foot on Africa, she got that disease, and a few days later, he was burying her. Lowered into the soil of the African earth there, an eyewitness said, David Livingston knelt beside the grave, weeping his heart out, and they overheard him saying, My Jesus, my King, my life, my all. I again consecrate my life to thee. I shall place no value on anything I possess or anything I may do except in relation to thy kingdom and to thy service. Through it all came the words of God to my heart, and he said, Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. He picked up his belongings and walked back to his hometown village of Ujiji. When he arrived and went to his little home there, he found that someone had played a cruel joke on him and had stolen his medication that he so needed because his body was racked with pain, untold pain. He walked in constant agony, and they said in one of the very few points of his life, he prayed for himself. He got on his knees and said, God, you promised you would always be with me. I need that medication if I am to continue preaching the gospel. As he prayed, 
he heard steps. And as the story goes, he saw a pair of feet planted in front of him and his countenance lifted for the first time in a long while. He was looking into the face of a white man who didn't live in Africa. He said, who are you, sir? And the man replied, Dr. Livingston, I presume. Those famous words, he said, yes, sir. Mr. Livingston, I'm a press reporter. I've been consigned to do a story on your life. I want you to know two things about me. Number one, I'm the biggest swaggering atheist on the face of this planet. Please don't try and convert me. Number two, somebody sent some medication for you. David said, give me the medication, please. So Mr. Henry M. Stanley started to travel with David Livingston. Four months later, the biggest swaggering atheist on the face of the planet knelt down on African soil and gave his heart to Jesus Christ. One of the best biographies you'll ever read on David Livingston, two volumes entitled Livingston of Africa by Henry M. Stanley. Stanley said, the power of that Christ life was awesome and I had to buckle in. I could, know, I could not hold out any longer. Finally, his body began to shrivel with high temperatures and pain. They used to carry him from village to village on a stretcher. One day, preaching from a stretcher, literally trembling, he finally looked at two of his national brothers and said, please take me back home. I'm very ill. I'm very tired. I need some sleep. They brought him back to his home and were about to spill him onto the bed when he said no. Please help me onto my knees. Livingston buckled down to his knees by the side of his bed and clasped his hands and started to pray. His prayers were so profound. His sanctuary was so unique that his African brothers felt it blasphemy to stay in a single union communion with God and they stepped out of this little room. Then somebody came running and said, I need to see Mr. Livingston for a moment. They said, shh, quiet. Please, he's praying. Five minutes later, they looked in. He was still on his knees. Several minutes went by. They looked in. He was still on his knees. After a protracted period of time went by, they looked in. He was still on his knees. One of them felt that the man was too tired to continue to pray. He needed to get some sleep. He walked over to him. One of them shook him by the shoulders, inquired, Wanna? Wanna? Livingston fell over. He was dead. He died exactly the way he had lived in the presence of his Lord. He didn't run from his voice. He didn't wear a lamp that had no light in it. He didn't sell a soul for some earthly treasure. But the haunting specter of the smoke of a thousand villages had burned itself within his heart so he could say, my Jesus, my King, my life, my all, I again consecrate my life to you. This media was produced by Audioverse for Amen, Adventist Medical Evangelism Network. If you would like to learn more about Amen, please visit www.amensda.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.